With the year all but at an end, it seemed like a good time to look back over the past few months of exploration in the psychedelic space. It's a big time in New Zealand at the moment, with a seeming critical mass forming around clinical trials, clinician training, and ketamine emerging here both as a treatment and a development focus for one of our largest pharmaceutical companies. This episode's a bit different from the others. Rather than bringing in a guest, Will is in the hot seat and we meander through a range of topics, including what happened at New Zealand's first Psychedelic Medicine Summit, his observations on the progress that's been made in the field locally over the past year or so, a quick overview of what's going on in the research space, and some thoughts and wonderings around ketamine, what we know, what we don't, and what might be around the corner. We started with the event that brought it all together, the Psychedelics in Medicine in New Zealand workshop, the first ever of its kind, held at the University of Auckland at the end of October. The event was arranged by some familiar names from this podcast and included some of our favourite guests. Associate Professor Suresh Muthukumaraswamy from Episode 3, Dr Lisa Reynolds from Episode 4, and Dr Will Evans himself. It was pretty profound, really well received. We've had all our feedback forms and and yeah, across the board, like really appreciated. Uh, it was just a real community event as much as a, a, a really dense day of, of research and science-based discussions. Uh, but the standout for everyone was the afternoon session, it seemed. The afternoon session started with a, a talk by Josh Chappelle about shamanism and plant medicine uh, and a and a big warning from him about the the nature of of corporate medicine and how uh, we need to be careful and and you know uh, hubris is is a real issue in medicine, feeling like we know all the answers. Um, and there's a lot of hypocrisy, obviously, because so much of our medicine has come from nature, from plants, from from fungi, from soil. Uh, we don't acknowledge that. But then after after Josh, there was the the Maori panel on um, spirituality, consciousness, and psychedelics as medicine, and that was with Papahone uh, Ratana, a tohunga of Rongoa Maori, and Hineroa Hakaeka. I think that's I've pronounced that right. It might not be right. Um, who's the co-clinical lead of mental health at? at the ADHB and it was just so profound to to hear that corridor around what psychedelics as medicine is uh, and it was incredibly abstract as well from a western perspective there it was stories about how when Hineroa was growing up in Lake Wakera Moana she her nana used to use karakia for healing and and nature and and rivers and and um, how she saw this wave uh, come and and completely overwhelm her nana and her cousin, and then saw them the next minute walking up the beach completely dry, and her nana was singing this karakia, and and it was just left like that, really abstract, really really ponderous and wondering and. And it made me realize that psychedelic, the word psychedelic, 
in the Western mindset and in the research mindset, we focus on the molecule, on the receptors, on the on the substantive phenomena. Uh, but really, it's it's the experience and it's all these other phenomena that we haven't been able to capture so far in our in our material framework. Uh, and the overriding message was nature. You know, all all your answers in in terms of understanding psychedelics as medicine, understanding Maori perspectives on psychedelics as medicine, um, and understanding consciousness and spirituality can be found in connection to nature. That seems to be something coming through more and more in a lot of our thinking and a lot of our research as well. So you had some big international guests as well, didn't you? Michael Mithofer, who is an MDMA guru from mm. way back, yeah? Yeah, and um, Phil Wolfson as well, who who opened the session. Uh, and both of them were phenomenal. Phil Wolfson was uh, surprisingly profound. I mean, he obviously he's a profound individual, but he really captured a lot of people's imaginations and hearts. Uh, so Phil's thing is ketamine. He's ketamine. been in, in the ketamine world for a very long time, hasn't he? And in fact, he was around for the first psychedelic revolution um, mm. and is now bringing a lot of that wisdom and understanding uh, to new practitioners. Um, what did he have to say? He published a paper back in the 80s about the benefits of MDMA uh, before MDMA became scheduled and, and a controlled substance. It was used quite prolifically by psychiatrists and psychotherapists for for all the benefits that we now are seeing it, it potentially have. Um, but his talk, I mean, it was very wide-reaching and he included all the psychedelics. He did a, a kind of review of all psychedelics and, and what they do from plant medicines through to the, the synthetics. Um, but ketamine in particular has been a um an area of interest for him and and ketamine assisted psychotherapy as a new model for um for delivering the benefit of of ketamine uh, he didn't i guess he didn't really i don't know it, it, it it was an hour-long conversation, so really there wasn't a huge amount of detail that he could go into apart from just touching the, the broad strokes. But but the take-home for me was that um, you have to integrate the substance with a practice, with, uh, with some deeper sense, I mean, even spirituality or something along those lines, uh, some greater than self meaning and and some some sort of yeah in order to integrate the experience and the and the neurobiological effects uh, and into daily living and for ongoing benefit from that experience um, you needed to implement some kind of practice and he wasn't prescriptive about that but did, did he talk about the diff I guess because it was a quite a clinical audience um 200 people yeah well over 100 people there and then between 30 and 50 on zoom at any 
any point in time. So. Did, did he talk about the differences in practice? Because that's one of the things that's really unfolded over our conversations has been it's not just a matter of adding the drug to an existing therapeutic situation. It is quite some, you know, something quite different. Yeah, I don't think he he touched on that too strongly. Uh, he's just a very inclusive, universal kind of guy, and and everyone got from him this powerful energy. You know, he's he was a he was shamanic. You know, being a psychiatrist, being a um, a researcher, he he also you know mentioned that he was a Tibetan Buddhist and now a secular Buddhist. If uh, I'm not sure if that was the phrase, but um, and. Yeah, he just had a real, real uh, presence about him, you know, that that transferred this feeling or, or of of presence to everyone. It was, would that it was have cool. would a lot of that information have been quite new to the people in the room? Because I've heard him do that kind of thing before, where he does really quite a broad sort of a summary. And actually, I had him earmarked to get on the show for that that very reason. It's just mm. a very good broad view of psychedelics in psychotherapy. Uh, how they work, what for what, where for where, how for how kind of thing. Mm. Um, was that new for a lot of the people in the room? Um, I think most most of the people in the room had some idea of what he was talking about. Um, there were, I, I'd say the majority of people knew the material, but he definitely brought a new perspective on it. Uh, just from wrapping it all together and then placing it in that almost cosmic context, which is a crazy thing for a psychiatrist to be able to do, right? Like to take take it from such material, uh, concrete, scientific basis all the way out to the spiritual. It was that's, that's it was profound. And Michael Mithoffer, big name. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful um, uh, presentation. I mean, he. He packed a lot into his hour and a bit uh, and just showed how central he's been to the entire revolution in MDMA psychotherapy. Now, his history is, I know he's been very involved in MAPS and those MDMA trials. Is is that where he comes from in mm, terms of his profile? Mm. So, uh, yeah, psychiatrist and really the main driving force behind all the all the research out of maps, so uh, designing the therapy model that they've used, he outlined it really nicely, um, and yeah, just came across incredibly compassionate, incredibly warm. Uh, spoke about a few anecdotes of of uh, his experiences during the the MDMA sessions, and um, yeah, just a really likable persona but also just just completely on point from a, a medical and scientific perspective his take home for me was um or my take home from his talk was uh, beware of reductionist thinking you know he had a whole slide dedicated to that uh and that was in the context of this concept of inner healing intelligence which is a, a maps manual concept it's pretty contentious you know people people see that uh, phrase and they're kind of like oh okay how what are we going to make of that 
And he did acknowledge, you know, inner healing intelligence that could sound quite woo, but repeatedly in hundreds of of clinical interactions, he sees this phenomenon of um, individuals finding their own equilibrium without outside interference uh, or with loving kindness support in that compassionate, open way that allows a person to access their own ability to make sense of themselves and heal in front of their eyes. So it's, so, and it was after that, he, he said, beware of reductionist thinking, because we do have that tendency. And then that came in very, very handy for the, the Maori perspectives on consciousness and spirituality, because we have this tendency to dismiss stories of, of karakia being able to affect wave morphology or, you know, saying a few incantations and healing somebody. Uh, but we have to keep our minds open to to this, not just for the metaphor, which it, it is a beautiful story and a narrative and a metaphor, but there may be phenomena that we don't fully understand that we need to to explore uh, and and attempt to understand from our rationalist frameworks, but also be prepared to change those frameworks to to see the phenomena that that keep occurring in front of our eyes. Were there many people talking about the complexities of psychedelic healing? Because that's something that's come up recently in some of the interviews that we've done with people who've been working in this space for years and years. I mean, Michael Mitoffer touched on that for sure. Uh, and the need for support, just as um, Phil Wolfson spoke about the need for implementing practice and grounding the uh, pharmacologic intervention in behavioral modification, lifestyle modifications, all these kinds of things. But um, no, it was a very strong scientific kind of workshop. Uh, the the whole morning session was, uh, apart from uh, Phil Wolfson's uh, talk and uh, and even uh, Phil and, and Michael were were quite medical and scientific. Mostly, it was presentations about various studies, the microdosing studies that are, are the one that's happening and the one that's on the horizon, uh, the ketamine work that that uh, Paul Glue's done, and the development of a long acting ketamine, oral ketamine, with Douglas Pharmaceuticals. Um, some some work that had been done around the the I think the neurobiological basis of anxiety was was another presentation which was interesting. Uh, I spoke after the lunch session on our MDMA study, um, and then we had the afternoon session. So yeah, overall really well rounded. Uh, didn't get too deep into the therapeutic aspect though and that would be something for the future you know there was one psychologist presenting who happened to be also the only female presenting so lisa reynolds, lisa yeah. reynolds yeah. Um, so, you know it's, it's, it is hard to find women in this world hmm. uh, and and female voices in this world and so yeah and she's she's amazing she's fantastic yeah, yeah but there, there needs to be more hmm. more uh more balance in the field around that. 
For sure. Yeah. So what was your sense of how people walked away from that and what they got out of it and how their thinking might have changed as a result of it or the questions that it was raising for them? Yeah. Across the board, everyone was came out of that just wide-eyed and inspired and and just, you know, firing on all cylinders. Everyone was so excited because they knew that that was, that was a – a birthing moment of an entire field in New Zealand. Um, you just don't get that kind of commitment to most fields of research on a Saturday. <laughs> you know, it's it was what amazing. A sense of cross-disciplinary, excuse mm. me, um, cross-disciplinary kind of cohesion. Mm. Because who would have been in that room? It was a lot of uh, a lot of medical doctors there, a lot of GPs, psychiatrists. Uh, registrars in various disciplines, um, uh, palliative care specialists, uh, but then also a lot of psychologists, um, psychotherapists, counsellors, uh, and and then there were researchers, uh, anthropologists, um, media were there. I mean, journalists were there. Uh, yeah, people from across the board. Uh, in all fields were were present so that was and and also of all ages so you had you know quite quite uh, senior older researchers and professors alongside junior uh, research associates um and also a really nice balance of male and female participants uh so it it bodes really well for the future you know that's that's one thing that came out of that but yeah, across across the board, everyone just felt this sense of community and belonging as well, which was beautiful. Uh, and then we had a small after party, and um, it was a chance for us to just continue the conversation in a more informal way. Yeah, so I think next year we're, we're definitely going to hold a similar event. Um, whether we stretch it out into a two-day thing, you know, hopefully we'll have some data to share by then. You know, it's all just in in potential right now. So just give us a bit of an overview of what's going on in New Zealand at the moment in the clinical trial space. You've got your MDMA and end-of-life anxiety study. Yeah, that's one study uh, that we hope to get across the line from an ethics perspective and start recruiting uh, next year, by early next year. Um there's the LSD microdosing study for healthy participants uh, that has got ethics approval and is about to start recruiting. Um, there is a ketamine-assisted psychotherapy study that has just received ethics approval. Uh, that's being led by Nick Ho, who's a psychiatrist at the DHB, and Francesca Fogarty, who's a, a health psychologist. Um and then there is also Lisa Reynolds uh, palliative care LSD microdosing study that is in protocol development stage. Is that a lot? We haven't seen that before in New Zealand, have we? Which that uh, many studies all at once in this space? Not in this space, no. There, there's just a critical mass, real interest, um, and yeah, I think it's it's all going to happen. It's going to it's and. And that's just the beginning because I'm hearing left, right, and center of other studies coming through other organizations um, 
doing studies in various parts of the country. So, uh, yeah, really watch this space. I think it's the tip of the iceberg. Hmm. And it, it seems to be in every direction, doesn't it? Because we've got the clinical research going on. There's your group of therapists that are meeting regularly and doing educational stuff at mm-hmm. this point. Uh, and we have got Douglas Pharmaceuticals. Tell us about what's going on there with that ketamine pill. So that's been uh, being developed, from what I understand, uh, with... Uh, Professor Glue down in Otago, and they seem to have created a pill that uh, you can take that will um, prolong the effects of ketamine because the the half life of oral ketamine is pretty short; it's probably an hour or so. Um, so this would enable uh, the effects to be to be more persistent, but without the dissociative effects. So people could essentially take ketamine and go about their daily business uh, and just have that in the background doing the the work on the receptors doing the work on on the brain that that um, from a psychiatric perspective uh, needs to be done it's a different model isn't it mm. I'm just thinking about that because then we're using it like, I guess, an antidepressant or something like that at that point. And then are those brain networks, I don't think they are, I think the answer to this is probably nobody knows, but my question would be, after all the interviews we've done and all the talking we've done, are those brain networks designed to be constantly interrupted? Is this something that we should be doing to our brains day in, day out? We, we won't know. That was one of the questions, actually, during Paul Glue's discussion is what are the long-term implications of this and Mm. is this a replacement for SSRIs and what's the exit strategy? And ketamine would be one of the only one of these substances that we talk about regularly here, right? We talk about MDMA, we talk about LSD, we talk about uh, psilocybin. Ketamine would be the only one with addictive, like true, proper, traditional um, addictive potential, wouldn't it? There is some evidence for abuse potential in MDMA. Uh, Except it stops working, doesn't it, after a certain... No, that's psilocybin. MDMA uh, doesn't stop working, per se. So so there is some literature to show that there is abuse potential there. Uh, but MDMA people lose the magic, in inverted commas, yeah? Right, yeah. And so you when could I say argue... stop working, there's no incentive any longer, I imagine. Uh, I'm not sure about that. I think... There's this common experience in MDMA of not experiencing that initial high, but you could probably say that about any experience uh, and any drug-related experience to some some degree. Mm. Uh, but yeah, ketamine does have the highest abuse potential of all the psychedelics. Is and it physically addictive? Not that I understand. No, you don't get withdrawal effects oh. from ketamine. You're just chasing the high. Kind You're, of. It's more the, yeah, chasing mm. the, the altered state of mm. mind. Because there are some... Um, it's a psychological addiction. I think. Right, and there is, but there is some thinking as well that potentially it acts on the opioid receptors, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. which then has got to potentially put it in that class of drugs to be careful of, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I need to have a uh, go back and have a look at actually what, if any... Uh, I mean, Paul Glue. Withdrawal, 
yeah. sy- syndrome there is with ketamine. Mm. But yeah, Paul Glue would definitely be able to answer that question. Mm, or even the psychological thing, I mm. suppose, because mm. it seems like um, from all of the things I've read and I guess what they know, because it's evolving constantly, isn't it, that, that the studies show that, that most of these substances people are not. And that's one of the great myths about psychedelics, isn't it, is, is their addictive potential. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, with ketamine, what what you mentioned about uh, the opioid receptor and its effect, it does m- seems to modulate opioid receptors. Doesn't it? Doesn't act as an agonist of the opioid receptor, uh, but we use it in palliative care sometimes for a supposed reset effect when the opioid receptors are saturated with with the buckets of opioids that we use. Sometimes changing the NMDA receptor. Uh, by antagonizing it with ketamine, that can um, that can have effects downstream or, or upstream effects on the opioid receptor. But I don't think uh, they would cause a withdrawal syndrome in a physical sense. Um, and certainly, people, people develop tolerance to ketamine as well. Mm. So I mean, people develop question. tolerance to everything, don't yes. they? There's, that's just one of the inherent equilibrium mechanisms of the brain and of the body is that you develop a tolerance to arsenic, you can develop a tolerance to, to you know, cigarette smoke, everything. Mm. I think that the scary, not the scary thing, the it's a bit alarmist, isn't it? I think the slightly concerning thing is... Um, well, for me, as a you know, someone looking in from the outside and interested in public opinion and people's perceptions, and it's all I've done for twenty five years is worry about those things for clients. Um, is that if a substance that has these questions hanging over it is the first one off the ranks in terms of any kind of commercial um, viability, then uh, you know something goes wrong. What does it do for the rest of it? And I mean, I guess the the pharmaceutical companies must be thinking about these things. Mm. The clinical researchers must be thinking about these things. Yeah. Um, they're big questions. Well, I, the the biggest danger I can see with ketamine is not the individual uh, um, dangers, but the population based dangers. So, uh, you know, Paul did. Uh, concede that there may be people who have to be on ketamine for lifelong uh, treatments. Um, others might be able to stop it just as they supposedly can stop SSRIs, but we all know that that's much easier said than done. Uh, so all of those factors of of um, population over time, mm. that's where the real harms can occur from introducing a new class of of substance, those individual type uh, emergent responses of you know, oh, this person stopped breathing and died, or this person committed suicide, they are relative anomalies that get a lot of media fanfare and can cause a lot of hysteria. Meanwhile, you know, hundreds or thousands of people are suffering or dying because they're having these quiet uh, side effects or, or you know smaller but persistent chronic type uh, effects that don't make good headlines and over a population and over time it can cause a lot of harm 
And I think the danger is, you know, as you say, that it slips into the pharmacopoeia as another thing that is like an SRI that people Mm. just sign off on and then suddenly it is there for life because it's just not reviewed and things just tick along. Um, It reinforces a model that that is inadequate. And And everyone we've talked to, every single person we've interviewed um, in this space, and ketamine is the the one that's easiest to have the conversation about because it's out there being prescribed. It's out there being used by real patients. It's, you know, it's out there. And, you know, for the last four years at scale, Mm. in a way Mm. that we are, it's, you know, it's it's a living example of the things we hypothesize about. Um, Everybody says, the same thing, which is, yep, ketamine changes brains and it does change brain chemistry, but something else is needed to keep that change alive. And you know, that being lifestyle changes, that being therapy, that, that being a whole lot of other things that come with the package to sustain mm. the change. Mm. Now, whether this does it in a different way, you know, I guess we'll wait and see. Yeah, uh, I guess the danger with all of this is that we we become quite myopic when we're trying to discern all the all the nuts and bolts and trying to reduce the phenomenology down to to an understandable algorithm but the bigger picture the the kind of expansive uh, macrocosmic picture or macroscopic picture is is a reflection of of what's important in daily living and life and it's not about psychedelics and and how to integrate their effects in the long run it's it's more about how to just live your life in a balanced and and meaningful happy way so whether it's food that you that you eat and how to integrate that into your daily life so that that so that you're getting the nutrient from the food that you're eating it's the same kind of thinking and conversation it's it's not unique to psychedelics you know we're just we're just missing the point in a way by trying to uh, i guess the problem is that in medicine in particular there's there has evolved this funny model where we have really reduced the human organism down to the body and we've just got this in our heads that we just need to find the right right molecule to fix the problem that is physical and uh, and that's where you get trapped <laughs> <laughs>